We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 this morning. And uh, we will be talking about marriage and sexuality from Genesis 2. So just to note, I'm not going to be talking about anything graphic or detailed. However, uh, there's obviously no real way to talk about these topics without perhaps mentioning some terms and concepts that you may not yet have explained to your children. And so if you have smaller children under the age of 10 or 12, just use your discretion as to whether they ought to stay or perhaps go to the children's ministry. We do have programs going on even at the 11 o'clock hour. Um, So think about that. And uh, we are excited about looking at Genesis chapter 2. That being said, uh, if you go onto the internet, if you go to Google and you do a Google search on marriage and you look for advice about marriage or quotes about marriage, you're going to get millions of hits, a whole lot of information, a whole lot of resources out there. I thought I would begin by sharing some of the more interesting quotes about marriage that I ran across this past week. This is from Ogden Nash. To keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Uh, This is uh, from Phyllis Diller. She says, whatever you may look like, marry a man your own age. As your beauty fades, so will his eyesight. (laughs) George Lichtenberg says, love is blind, but marriage restores its sight. H.V. Prochnow says, the best way to remember your wife's birthday is to forget it once. Some of you have been there, perhaps. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says, marriage is an adventure, like going to war. And then... uh, Henry Youngman says, some people ask the secret of our long marriage. We take time to go to a restaurant two times a week. A little candlelight, dinner, soft music and dancing. She goes Tuesdays, I go Fridays. (laughs) If you're married and if you've been married for any period of time, uh, you will know that there are moments where expectation and reality clash. Where this person whom you love, whom you married with high hopes, doesn't act in the way you expected or doesn't say the things that make you feel good. And so you have often this tension or frustration of going, I thought that one thing was going to happen and another thing is happening. And that doesn't make me happy. That doesn't meet my needs. Uh, For some of you, you may be able to remember the first moments when you had this realization that your marriage was going to take some work, that it wasn't going to be a Meg Ryan movie. Sleepless in Seattle didn't prepare you for this, right? Uh, For Shannon and me, and I asked Shannon's permission to share this, I can remember about a month after we were married, it was on February 14th, so Valentine's Day, uh, we had our first uh, major discussion, I'll call it. Uh, What happened was my mom called as we were on the way out the door to go eat dinner. And she called to say happy Valentine's Day, but also just to ask, did you happen to write a thank you note to your grandmother yet for the wedding gift? And, uh, you know, this was uh, some years back, and so I couldn't just text grandma, right? Thank you, Gma, for the gift, L-O-V-U, or whatever. You know, we had to actually sit down and write a note. And uh, we were a little bit behind. And uh, to my shame, I was not helping probably as much as I could have. And so uh, my grandmother, for whom it was very important to receive uh, this demonstration of her con- of appreciation. Mentioned it to my mom. My mom mentioned it to me. And then being the helpful husband that I was, uh, I mentioned it to Shannon. And she said, well, we'll get to it. Uh, I am writing the notes. I'm just a little bit behind. I've got a system and we'll get there. And I said, well, can't we just rearrange the system? 
and write grandma's first. I'd like to say that my motivations were honorable. The reality is I just wanted to avoid the conflict, right? The hassle of hearing from mom and grandma and all this kind of stuff. And she said, well, that kind of makes me feel like a child and like I'm being bullied. I don't want to feel that way. And I said, well, it's really simple. You just rearrange the order and then nobody feels this way, right? This started around 6.30 in the evening. Uh, Finally, we hit Red Lobster about 9.30. And uh, fantastic Valentine's Day as for three hours, we both realized that the other person did not always act in ways that made us happy. Now, I remember thinking, how could one person be so unreasonable? (laughs) One person, right? And she's thinking, how could one person be so insensitive and unkind? Often we have those moments where expectation and reality clash. Now, it may be that uh, you're a person who has a very laid-back temperament, so does your spouse, and you really don't clash a whole lot. You really don't have these conflicts. If that is you, the rest of us are super happy for you. But the reality is that for most of us, we have those moments. And often at the root of those conflicts and at the root of those frustrations really is a sinful attitude about marriage. That when I'm frustrated with my spouse or you're frustrated with something he or she did, it's because at the root of it, you believe that this person and this relationship exists to make you happy, to meet your needs, to fulfill your desires. And so the more each of you tries to get out of the other person, what will make you feel good, the more frustrated both parties become. And so we have this belief that marriage exists just to meet our needs. And it's a belief that's reinforced in the world around us all the time. It doesn't take long to watch movies, to look at the media, to listen to songs. And you begin to believe that marriage and sex are designed to make me happy. As long as it makes me feel good, I should pursue it. When it stops making me feel good, I can get out of it. And so I think a lot of our culture's attacks on marriage are because of this underlying misunderstanding. So we look at a push toward gay marriage. We look at a a prevalence of pornography in our society and a prevalence of sexuality outside the boundaries of marriage. And what we really see is that there's underlying all of this, a belief that the reason I'm here is just to meet my needs, to fulfill my desires. Kind of an if it feels good As long as I'm with this person and it feels good, I'll pursue it. Well, biblically, that's not what marriage is for. And what we need is a biblical picture of the marriage relationship. Now, it's not that marriage can never make you happy, and we'll talk about that. And it's not that a biblical understanding of marriage will resolve all of the conflicts. But instead, as we look at what the Bible says, I think it's going to begin to shape how we treat our spouses, And how we view marriage and its purpose. Because marriage is designed in the context of God's creation story. Marriage is designed to be a vessel for you and me to partner together with our spouses. To do God's will. To reflect God's kingdom. And to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. And so marriage ultimately is more about God's purposes for our life. Than it is about what we want. Now, depending on where you are in your own marriage or in your own life, this sermon may play a different role. For some of you, this is just going to be a helpful reminder, a helpful refresher. Your marriage is in a pretty good place, but maybe there are some adjustments for most of us at any given time. There are some adjustments 
that we can make. And so that may be what this sermon and this text does for you. For some of you, you may be in a place in your marriage where you're ready to throw in the towel. And this passage from Genesis 2 may provide for you a radically different view of what your marriage is supposed to be from the way you're treating it right now. And as you begin to recognize that God is calling you to set aside your own desires, your own selfishness, your own pursuit of your own needs, and move toward what he's calling us to represent in Jesus Christ, as you begin to do that, this may be a very pivotal day for you in your marriage where you move forward with a different set of assumptions and it changes everything. Now, there are some of you I know that aren't married, but you hope to be. Uh, You are single right now. Maybe you're dating. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe at some point in the future, you hope to be one or both of those things, right? And you say, I'm not married. What will this do for me? And for those individuals, this could be a preparation for the future. Or you may be a person that says, I don't know if I'm ever going to get married. Maybe God has called me to be single for my life. And yet you still have married friends, married family members, married brothers and sisters in Christ, and to know how to pray for them, to support and encourage them, it's helpful to understand the biblical perspective on marriage. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. If you would read with me. Starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man... To be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so as we look at the end of Genesis 2, we see God creating marriage in the context of having just finished creating the world. And it's going to give us a perspective on what marriage really is. But before we dive even into that, there are some things that are not in this passage. There are some things that marriage is not that I think we often assume it should be. So I'm going to walk through a few things that marriage is not first before we talk about what marriage is. All right, first of all, marriage is not the path to personal wholeness. And what I mean by that is uh, as we look at our world's view of marriage, we often hear this message that you are half of a person. And when you get married, then you're a full person. That that partner, that spouse will complete you. The truth is, as you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and as you look through the scripture, uh, You are already a whole person because God created you and me fully in his image. You can relate to God. You can reflect God's glory. You can represent him. If you remember Brian's message a few weeks ago about the image of God, each person, male and female, 
in and of yourself, you are made in God's image. If you are single, you are not half of a person. And in fact, as we walk through the New Testament, we see Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 saying, in some cases, singleness can be a noble calling as it allows certain individuals to focus more fully on the things of Jesus Christ. And if you're married and you're looking to marriage to make you whole or complete, the message for you is that you already are whole because God has made you in his image. And nobody can make you whole except for God. If you look to your spouse to complete you, to make you a whole person, you'll be disappointed. Marriage is not the path to wholeness. Marriage is not a cure for loneliness. That may surprise some. I remember before I got married thinking once I'm married, I will never be lonely again. Because when you are single, often you think, why is it that there's not a person by my side? Once you are married, those who are married know you still feel lonely. Right now, sometimes you get to be team lonely. You get to be lonely as a pair. So instead of wondering, why is there not a person by my side? You go, why did nobody, no other couples call us this week? Right? We're lonely now as a team. Okay? <laughs> but there are also times that you feel distant from your spouse, Right? And a lot of that is because we are finite. I can't fully know the mind of another person. I can't completely commune with another person with the level of intimacy and closeness that I might like. And so there are times in a relationship where I may feel more distant or closer to this person. I think that will be a reality. I think loneliness will be a reality until the day we see Jesus face to face and the light of his presence drives away our loneliness. And so if you look to marriage to take that away, you'll be disappointed because loneliness is a reality of living as a finite and sinful person where often there are things that separate us from other people. So marriage is not a cure for loneliness. And then lastly, marriage is not the ultimate path to happiness. I mentioned this briefly in the introduction, but if you look to another person to meet all your needs, to make you always happy, you will be frustrated. Think about it this way. Those of you who are parents, what if you approached your relationship with your kids by saying, these kids exist to make me happy? Those of you who are chuckling, no, that would make everybody miserable, wouldn't it? Now, can your kids bring you joy? Can they make you happy at times? Certainly, as you train them to know Jesus, as you see them grow, as you see them develop, hopefully into people who are independent of you, but dependent upon God, they can bring you joy. But if you approach the relationship with that purpose, everybody's going to get frustrated and miserable. The same applies to marriage. It's less intuitive because we think this person's an adult. They should be able to make me happy. But the reality is if I approach my marriage saying your job and the job of this relationship is to make me happy and fulfilled, I will be frustrated. Now, again, can marriage make us happy? Can it bring us joy? Certainly. And I think that if we pursue it according to God's design, it has a much greater chance of making us happy and bringing us joy. But that's not its purpose. Instead, as we look at the scripture, we're going to see that the purpose of marriage as part of God's creative plan is that we can reflect who he is, that we can more effectively share the gospel as pairs the way that he created. 
And again, we're talking about God's global plan. And as I mentioned, if you're an individual who's single, that doesn't mean you cannot reflect God's purposes. That does not mean that you can serve him any less. But instead, as we look at God's plan for the world and the scope of creation, he says, my plan is best served if there are men and women who work together to fulfill my purposes. So that's what we're going to see. Marriage is not these things, but what is marriage? All right, marriage is, first of all, a partnership in which together we represent God's kingdom. Look at verses 18 to 23 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Let me pause there. This is a striking statement because seven times in chapter one, as God is creating the world, he says, it's good. 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 And then the last time it's very good or it's good. It's exceedingly good. Seven times. And then here we get to chapter two and he looks at the man alone and he says, not good. It's not good for the man to be alone because alone, apart from the presence of the woman, he cannot fulfill the purpose that God had laid out in chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, which was what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all of the creatures on God's behalf. Certainly, physically, the man can't do that on its own. He can't multiply all by himself. He cannot reproduce. Physically, man and woman are both required, but there's even more to it than that. And God says what he needs is a helper suitable to him, somebody who corresponds to him. And the idea is a helper who is like unto the opposite of him, literally. She's like him, but she's not quite the same. She corresponds so that where he is weak, she is strong. And where she is weak, he is strong. And the two of them partner together so that they represent different aspects of the love and the character of God. And they rule his creation together. And they reflect his love together. And so man and woman are both necessary to fulfill God's purposes. The fact that they think differently, the fact that they relate differently, the fact that they are different, God designed it that way to create this partnership. It's interesting, studies have demonstrated that corporate boards with men and women both on them tend to be more profitable and make better decisions than those who only have men or only have women because men and women bring different approaches to problem solving. And different ways of relating to others within the company. And so together, they make a more dynamic partnership to get the task done. This is what God knows. And he looks at Adam. He says, not good for him to be alone. He creates a helper suitable for him. Who is strong where he is weak. Some of you may have seen the original Rocky movie that came out 30 some years ago. Uh, Rocky, played by Sylvester Stallone, right, falls in love with Adrian. And Rocky is kind of this big uh, athlete, kind of a big hunk, hunky specimen of a man, right? And he's a good boxer, but he's not always the brightest bulb in the drawer. And Adrian is shy, quiet, bookish, very, very different. And the two of them are attracted. And Polly, Rocky's friend, who also happens to be uh, Adrian's brother, one day asks Rocky, so you really like her, don't you? And Rocky goes, yeah, yeah. And Polly says, I don't get it. What's the attraction? And Rocky goes, I don't know. Fills gaps. And Polly goes, what do you mean it fills gaps? He goes, I don't know. Uh, She got gaps. I got gaps. Together, fill gaps, right? Now, what Rocky doesn't know at that moment is he is a deep theologian on the order of Genesis 2. That's exactly what this passage is saying. Together, 
they fill these gaps. And so they each bring these different strengths and weaknesses. And God says, I will create a helper suitable to him, corresponding to him. She's like him, but she's also different. The uh, biblical term for the helper here, azer, uh, it doesn't translate really well into English. If I say that someone is my little helper, that's not exactly an exalted term. But as we look at the word azer throughout scripture, in fact, the one who is most often referred to as an azer, as a helper, is God. If you look at Psalm 121, you see this. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Or my azer. My azer, help, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God provides strength that I lack. He provides a strength that I need in order to do his will. That is the idea of I will make a helper suitable. If you think about two warriors in battle and used to be that uh, they would tie themselves together at the back and they would have 360 degree range of motion and this person behind you was your azer. He had your back. That's the idea. Where he is weak, she is strong and vice versa. And God says, I've designed it to be this complementary partnership. Not complementary in the sense that they say nice things to each other, although hopefully they do, but complementary in the sense that they correspond. They are suitable to one another. God says, Adam needs one of those. And I love the way that he demonstrates to Adam who his suitable partner is. Look at verses 19 through 23. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God says, Adam, you're going to name all the animals. And he brings them all before Adam. And so Adam stands there and here comes the giraffe. And he says, we'll call that one giraffe. And in the back of his mind, he thinks, is this the helper? The one that God's going to make, he goes, no, too tall, right? So here comes monkey. Is this the helper? We'll call him monkey. No, too crazy. You can't work with monkey, right? There's no partnership. Here comes dog, right? Fluffy, sweet, loyal, too dumb, right? And so we go on and on and on. And all of the animals come before Adam and none of them are a suitable helper. This is the saddest country song you've ever heard, right? <laughs> He's all alone. Everybody has a partner but him. And he's exhausted. And so God puts him to sleep. And out of his side, out of his rib, God takes a rib and he closes up the place and he creates this woman, this helper. And it's significant that she comes out of him because she's of the same substance. She is like him. She's a human being fully made in God's image. And Matthew Henry in his commentary, and I'm paraphrasing, but he puts it beautifully. He says, she comes from his side, not from his head that she might rule over him, nor from his feet that he might trample upon her, but from his side that she would be cherished and protected and loved. She is made to be of the same substance. She's a human being, but she's different. 
And so Adam wakes up and he sees the woman and he goes, this is now or at last, finally, after all the monkeys and zebras and lions and all this kind of stuff, finally, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew is Ishab, for she was taken out of man, which is Ish. Right? She's like me, but she's different. And so she corresponds. Right? There are a few things that will make a man write poetry and songs. But you turn on the radio and women are one of them. Right? In fact, the primary one. Uh, There are 40 million songs I read that you could download or that you could uh, buy on a CD. I'm guessing that 39 million of those are men writing about women, about her hair, her eyes, her beauty, her body, her skin, how she loves me, how I love her. I love her and wish she loved me, how I once loved her and she loved me, but she doesn't anymore. And I wish she would love me again, right? There are so many variations on that song. This is the first one. Adam wakes up and he bursts into song. He doesn't do that with the giraffe or the monkey or any of the other animals. Because she fits him. Finally, this one corresponds to me. And you see this complementary relationship. God has designed her to be a human being, yet different. And so they bring different strengths to the table. Different approaches to the table. Clearly, their physical differences allow them to fulfill God's commission to procreate and fill the earth. And so God creates this perfect partner. My guess is, if you're married, that you've noticed that your spouse is different from you. Some of those differences, in in fact, probably frustrate you from time to time. Uh, My wife is more detail-oriented than I am. I often don't notice or see details. She does. That can be frustrating for her. For example, if I'm doing laundry. My wife is more concerned with aesthetics than I am. She wants to make things beautiful and look good. I often don't notice those sorts of things. And that can create frustration on both sides. And yet, the reality is that she creates a beautiful, warm home for our kids, their friends, for our friends. I spent the first two years of our marriage wondering why we needed decorative throw pillows. Now, college guys, if I come into your dorm, I'm going to recommend it. You need some pillows on that sofa. I get it. It creates warmth and hominess. And it may be that you look at your spouse sometimes and you you scratch your head and you go, why is he like that? Why does she do that? And it becomes the source of most of your conflicts. Here's the issue. God created you that way. That the very differences that frustrate you can also be the means by which you more effectively represent God's kingdom. Where one is weak, the other is strong. And as you walk through the scripture, you see this pattern of complementarianism weaving its way through the scripture. If you get to Ephesians 5 and you start reading about different roles in marriage and it talks about the man loving his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife submitting and following her husband. And you read that and you go, what is going on from 21st century eyes? Is Paul saying one is superior, one is inferior? Is Paul saying one is less than? Absolutely not. What he is saying is that the differences between the man and the woman are uniquely designed that we each represent a different aspect of the love of Jesus Christ to the world. And if you think submission makes one inferior, 
then read the illustration of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. And if you think that leadership means shoving others around, then go read the book of 1 Peter. It talks about what it means to set aside one's rights for the sake of the other. And so God designed these differences so that we might partner together to do his will, to rule the earth on his behalf, to reflect his greatness and his glory. And God says we need both men and women in marriage to do that. So on this point, application for you this week, be thankful for those differences between you and your spouse. You say, I'm not thankful. I don't like them. (laughs) Be thankful. Take time to thank God deliberately that your spouse is different and then go one step further. Write a note to your spouse for the way he or she compliments you. I'm glad we're different because in my weakness, you are strong. And where you are weak, I'm able to bring my strength. So write a thank you note for the way in which he or she compliments you and commit to partnering together to share the gospel and reflect Jesus Christ. All right, so marriage is this partnership. It's also a picture of, of the love of Jesus Christ. Together we reflect God's love. We partner together to fulfill his purposes. We also reflect his love. Look at verses 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Several years ago, I read this passage at a wedding. And after I read that part about naked and not ashamed, this little boy goes, gross, right? And everybody starts laughing. But what's great in the context of this passage is uh, there's no hint of it being awkward or gross or weird. And the reason is because they had not yet been separated from each other by sin. And as we get to chapter three next week, what we're going to see is that sin will cause them to be aware of their vulnerability and their nakedness. And nakedness here is really an analogy for something much broader. Certainly they are physically naked and there is sexual intimacy implied in this passage, but there's much, much more. They have nothing to hide from each other, emotionally or spiritually. They are open and laid bare before God and one another. And so they participate in this one flesh intimacy. The man joins together with his wife and they are one flesh. And again, there is a picture of the sexual relationship in marriage, but also a picture of the love of God in its selflessness and its love for another. Now, God clearly does not have a physical body. He is not sexual in his nature. He's neither male nor female. And yet the sexual relationship, even in marriage, is designed to reflect the love of God because each partner has to set aside his or her desires and rights to love the other. And study after study after study demonstrates that men and women think differently about sex, right? You say, duh, who pays for these studies, right? The reality is that as you look at men and women, they think differently about how they relate. Those differences are designed so that I have to say, I'm going to set aside what I would want for the sake of my spouse and enter into this relationship of selfless, loving concern for the other person. And so you see this one flesh intimacy that goes, by the way, much beyond, like I said, much beyond just the sexual relationship. Certainly that is in the passage, but there's also an emotional relationship between the two of them. They have nothing 
to hide. And then there's a spiritual relationship where as they relate to God, God now is able to help them and give them strength to relate well to one another. And that's the idea of this multifaceted relationship where they reflect the love of Jesus Christ together. It's also why the marriage relationship is intended to be permanent. We recognize that certainly in a fallen world, divorce sometimes happens and one party or the other may not be able to control the situation. But ideally, marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment because that reflects the permanent and enduring love of God in Jesus Christ. If you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So as we get married, we take these vows and we essentially say, nothing will separate you from my love because as Ephesians 5 says, this relationship reflects the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And it's built and meant to last. And so it's this selfless, giving, sacrificial, enduring love that God wants to demonstrate. And what that means is, if I come toward marriage saying, you need to make me happy and meet my needs, this relationship is always going to come up short of what God intended it to be. And it's never going to reflect the character of Jesus to the extent that he intended it to do. And so these differences and these challenges and these struggles often are designed to refine our character and cause us to move toward the other person with a sacrificial and selfless type of love. So it's a partnership and it's a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe that you're here and in your marriage, one or both of you doesn't know Jesus Christ. And marriage is difficult as it is. It's very confusing and challenging if you don't recognize the basis upon which it was created. Marriage is designed to reflect the love of God in Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Well, he died on a cross in our place. As Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and even beyond that, he went to a cross so that you and I could receive eternal life. And if you don't believe that, if you have not yet entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, marriage really never fully makes sense until you understand who God is and what he's done in Jesus. And and God wants to know you through Jesus Christ, not just so you can have a happy marriage, but so that you can live with him for eternity, so that you can be adopted as his child and know that you're secure in him and that he loves you. So it may be this morning, the application for you is simply place your faith in Jesus Christ and use that then as the basis of your life and the basis upon which you love others, including your spouse. And for those of us who know Jesus and who are married, I think the challenge then is to reflect the love of Jesus Christ day in and day out, even when it's tough. So let me challenge you to an application Ask this question. What would make your spouse feel most honored and loved this week? My guess is that you could figure that out by playing back a tape of the previous week and hearing your spouse say, uh, you never 
blank. I wish you would do this more. How come this doesn't happen? You say, oh, that's the thing. I don't want to do that. That's kind of hard. That's exactly the issue. What would make your spouse feel most honored and loved this week? And then do that thing. Even if it's hard. Even if it rubs up against every selfish tendency we have. To go, okay, I'll do that, but I, they better do something for me. No. Without any expectation of repayment. What would make your spouse feel most honored and loved? And move toward them in the spirit of the love of Jesus Christ. I recognize that there are some in here this morning that your marriage is having a hard time and you may be on the verge of throwing in the towel and saying this just isn't going to work. A few exhortations and encouragements this morning. First of all, pray, pray, pray. There's a reason that I think Satan attacks marriage and it is because marriage is intended to so effectively represent the love of Jesus Christ. It is one of the clearest visual pictures that we have in our world of the love of Jesus Christ. And so the enemy attacks it and attacks it and attacks it. And so pray. Recognize this is a spiritual battle. And it's the strength of God's spirit that will pave the way for new life in your marriage. So pray. Secondly, don't give up hope. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can restore your marriage. Don't give up hope. And if you need to, seek help. Often there are challenges and struggles in our lives and in our marriage that when we're in the midst of them, it's really hard to pull back and be objective. And those who are honest will say, hey, every couple has challenges and struggles. I think what often separates those that last from those that don't is their willingness to seek input, to humbly figure out where can we make corrections, where can we adjust, how can this relationship reflect Jesus Christ. And so seek help. We can give you the names of Christian counselors. You can come talk with one of the pastors, but don't allow your marriage just to die without fighting for it and seeking help. A few resources that may help if you're the type of person that rather than talk would like to read, uh, which I am, uh, Love and Respect by Emerson Egrix. Shannon and I read this a couple of years ago, and I know it was very transformational to both of us in the way we approached our marriage and thought about what the other person needs and desires from us. Uh, God, Marriage, and Family. This is more of a theological book about the biblical foundations of marriage and family. And then The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. If you've not read that, it'll just give you a better picture of why is it when I do this for my spouse that would make me feel loved, uh, he or she doesn't respond as I expect. So those are some good resources. I will also put some resources up on Facebook, uh, on my Twitter account, and on our app. We will have a question answer as we've been having a podcast that will go out later this week. So if you've got questions you would like us to answer on that, uh, shoot me an email or or find me on Twitter or Facebook and uh, let me know. And we will try to incorporate those in. We want to provide as many resources as we can in this area. So that our marriages ultimately can become a partnership where we work together together to fulfill God's purposes, and then a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. It's not easy, but it is worth it for our marriages to be able to reflect to the world who God is, rather than to reflect just a desire 
to meet our own needs. Our heart is that we will show the love of Jesus Christ in all of our relationships and in this very critical area of marriage. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time and this opportunity to study your word. We confess that often we are selfish and often we just we want our own needs to be met. We want our own desires to be fulfilled. I pray that we would seek through Jesus Christ and his spirit's power to reflect you, to love even when it's hard, to seek to set aside our desires for the sake of those to whom we're married. I pray for those who are not yet married, that you would allow them to trust you. I know that your plan for each life is different and each person, and yet you are perfect and you love us and want what is best. Father, for those that are in difficult marriages, I pray the same thing, that we would trust you, that you would bring healing and new understanding and new life. We know you can do it because you are that powerful. Father, give us energy and joy for the weak to reflect Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Fisher here with Matt Morton, one of our teaching pastors at Grace Bible Church, also the world's foremost authority on godly biblical marriages. (laughs) We are going to talk to Matt a little bit about his recent sermon on marriage and sexuality. Uh, Matt, let's, let's start with something really practical. Husbands and wives, men and women approach issues, conversations, topics from very different perspective, obviously. So I want you to give the men some advice on how they can get their wives to think more like they do. That's the goal, right? <laughs> isn't, isn't that what we're after? That is, I tell you, if you can find that secret, bottle it and sell it, you'd have a lot of people buy it. Uh, I suppose you could find a way to do that, but uh, everybody would be miserable more than they think, I would imagine. So, um, yeah, and you know, that's that's a great question. I know that as a husband, at least at times, I have thought that. If only I could get my wife to see everything the way I do. Uh, but one of the things we talked about from Genesis 2 yesterday was that concept that the differences between us, even though they're frustrating sometimes, are also what can make us more effective. That God designed us to be different so that we can learn to love someone who is different and also so that where one is strong, the other is weak, and where one is weak, the other is strong, we partner together to fulfill God's purposes. So, uh, yeah, that's why one of the exhortations in this sermon was husbands and wives actually thank your spouse for those areas that you're different, even if that's frustrating to you at times. Right. In the middle of the conflict, you want the other person to think like you, but as you're saying, part of the gift from God is that for husbands, he has made a helper comparable to you, that is different that fills in your your gaps and your weaknesses. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's that concept of when God says to Adam or about Adam, I'll make a helper suitable for him. She corresponds to him. She's like him in that she's human. She's made in the image of God of the same essence and substance, but she's different. She thinks differently. Obviously, she looks differently physically. They have different approaches to problem solving and to life often. And so uh, she is the perfect corresponding partner that God has created. 
Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute. When we think about gender roles within the marriage, husbands are commanded in Ephesians 5 to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and which is a, it's a huge task, a daunting task. It doesn't necessarily feel like a demeaning task, whereas wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. And a lot of times I've heard the accusation, well, the Bible is sexist mm. in making that command to wives. Yeah, and I think the obviously the term sexist is pretty uh, strong in the sense that it is inherently a negative term. Um, if by sexist we mean that one sex is inferior to the other, then the Bible never espouses that concept. It never really endorses that idea of sexism. You know, there's two basic approaches that Christians use to tackle Ephesians 5. One is what would be called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is going to say there really are no distinctions functionally between the sexes, um, and there are no distinctions in roles, and there's no distinction ultimately in the way they operate. So egalitarianism will say uh, men and women lead absolutely together, in the church and in the home. Every role in the church, every role in the home is open to both sexes, and there should be no distinctions. Complementarianism is the other position which will say men and women are equal in the eyes of God in the sense that they are both made in the image of God. Uh, neither is superior in what we would call an ontological sense, meaning neither is superior in their very being or essence. Men and women are equal in the sense that God made them both. Both have equal access to Jesus Christ, but they have different roles, and God has designed it to be that way. So if you think of any organization, you're going to think about an authority structure, whether that is a corporation, whether that's a club you're in, there is leadership in every organization. Um, in marriage, God has designed it such that there is leadership in marriage. And so uh, the woman's role in submission then, uh, the wife's role in submission is not demeaning and it's not intended to be sexist, but instead it's to reflect the nature of God, that even within the Godhead, there is authority and submission. Jesus Christ submits to his Father, and you see him make statements throughout his ministry that he's doing the will of his Father. In Philippians 2, you see him humbling himself to the point of death and setting aside his rights. So submission does not make a person inferior any more than the submission of Jesus Christ made him inferior. Instead, uh, marriage at its best represents the relationship between uh, the Father and the Son, but also between Jesus Christ and his people, that as we follow Jesus Christ and he lovingly leads us, so the wife follows and the husband ideally lovingly leads. So sexist isn't the appropriate term. The Bible recognizes differences between the sexes, but those differences aren't based on one being superior to the other. Right. And as you noted, you talked about two specific places in which this commandment, so to speak, plays out. Uh, within the church, within the home. The commandment is not women submit to men, right? generally, yeah. but wives under your husband. So it's it's talking about a, a confined relationship there. The other thing that I often point out to young husbands is that Ephesians 5 does not say, husbands, make your wives submit. <laughs> but wives, choose to submit to your husbands and thereby follow the example of Christ, who was not subjugated, so to speak, wasn't forced to submit 
but willingly submitted himself, saying to the Father, so to, you know, in the in the prayer in Gethsemane, "Not my will, but right. yours be done." And so, in that respect, wives are are following the example of Christ in submission, just as husbands follow the example of Christ in sacrificial love. Absolutely, yeah. And the, I think you phrase it well. The concept of making another person submit will never lead to the sort of partnership that God designed marriage to be that you see in Genesis two. A husband is foolish if he uh, runs over his wife or pushes past the strengths that she brings to the table just so that he can say he's in charge. That is an antithesis to the loving leadership of Jesus. Okay, so let's give me another practical example of submission and servant leadership and how that plays out in the home. I assume that Shannon always gives in to you, right? <laughs> oh, man. Well, my wife, yeah, does not, um, and nor should she. Um, you know, I think I've seen over the years with my marriage that it, it is a good illustration of this concept. In many ways, my wife is smarter and more capable than I am. She is creative. She's an entrepreneur. She's talented. She's a great communicator. So in a lot of ways, she brings strengths to the table that I don't have. Um, we have had instances, though, in the past where we might reach an impasse on a decision and there needs to be some sort of leadership structure to solve that issue. So let me give you an illustration. A number of years ago, when I was in seminary, we had been going to a church for a few years and we began to ask the question of, should we start looking around for a different church? Should we stay at this church? There were some challenges at the time in that church. And certainly we both felt emotionally in some sense, the easiest course would be to start over, look for something new. Um, I felt though that we had made a a commitment to serve at this church for a particular period of time. Um, And we had not made a direct and unalterable commitment. I just felt that our time there wasn't done. Uh, We talked about it. We prayed about it. I certainly listened to Shannon's viewpoint, and she expressed it, and she listened to mine. But we we eventually reached a place where it was clear we were not going to fully agree on the decision. Both of us had expressed our points of view, and we still had different points of view. And so after prayer and discussion, we decided to stay. And um, having taken her input into consideration and prayed about it. I felt like the best decision was for us to stay. So there are cases in every marriage where uh, a decision needs to be made. And that's where I think this idea of leadership and submission comes into play. But again, a husband would be foolish just to make a decision like that without uh, listening seriously to his his wife's concerns. So Christ has placed you as the head of the home as uh, he is the head of the church. Y- you have that responsibility. You have that authority. Do you ever give in? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, give if by give in in the sense that you mean, do I win every conflict? Absolutely not. Um, I give in often because my wife is right. Uh, there are many instances in which, as we discuss it, she's correct and I'm not. And so uh, many times the way that she is thinking about the issue is clearer and better than the way that I'm thinking about the issue. And so again, leadership does not mean in any situation, whether it, again, whether it's in a corporation, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a home, leadership does not mean that you always get your way 
or that you're always right. Leadership means ultimately that you're the one responsible for standing out front and making the decisions on behalf of this organization or on behalf of this family and taking the consequences that may come from that. And so even if Shannon and I disagree and we ultimately go the direction that she's urging us to, uh, I still bear the responsibility for that as the leader of the home because I am the one called to direct the course of our family in that sense. So sometimes you give in because she convinces you. Sometimes you choose to go her direction because you feel like that's the best course even when you disagree. But leadership means, as you're describing it, that you bear the responsibility for the outcomes or the ramifications of that decision as the head of the home. Absolutely. Okay. Matt, you talked Sunday about the phrase one flesh and that it's broader than sexuality, but it does include sexuality. And so I'd like for you to, to talk for just a few moments about the role of sex in marriage. The way that the biblical text <laughs> seems to direct us is that sex, in a sense, is a reflection within marriage of the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. And you see in Genesis 2 that um, the one flesh relationship is intended to be a way for the man and the woman to connect and to reflect the love of God. And so when the relationship is going well emotionally and spiritually, the sexual relationship will reflect that. When it's going poorly emotionally and spiritually, the sexual relationship will reflect that as well. And so even secular psychologists will tell us that the health of a relationship often can be seen in the sexual relationship. And so one of the aspects of this complementarity that we see is even physically, husband and wife are made differently. They think about sex differently. And again, study after study shows that, that um, their needs sexually are often different and the way that they approach those needs, it's different. And so what sexuality requires is for each partner, in a sense, to think about what is best for the other person. Um, that's why I think uh, just incidentally that uh, God created a man and a woman, and so heterosexual marriage is his design because it requires us to think about the needs of somebody who is not like us. So there's two extremes we could go to then. One would be to think sexuality is somehow an end in and of itself. Um, and I think we see that in our culture all the time. If you see movies and we see the prevalence of pornography, the message is often that sex is about what makes me happy. Even right. if that's sex at, is about taking. Right. Even mm -hmm. if that's at the expense of the other person. The other extreme we could go to is to say that sex doesn't matter, that it's unimportant or has no role. The danger there is you, you can end up with couples that have some serious problems, and that may be reflected in the sexual relationship. Um, sometimes we run into couples in counseling that they may not have had sex for quite some time, and neither has discussed it or talked about it because they've become so emotionally distant and relationally distant that they're not connecting on any level. Right. They're not yeah. delighting in one another relationally, and so they can't delight in one another sexually as well. Right. Yeah. And so... Ideally, what sex does is it bonds the couple together. It does provide an avenue, certainly, for procreation, as we see in Genesis chapter 1. Um, and then it also provides a measure of how are we doing in these other areas of our relationship. So it's just a great picture, physically, of what the marriage relationship is intended to be in all of its aspects. 
Matt, thanks for taking the time to talk a little bit more about the sermon. We have more resources on our website. If you want to check us out, www.grace-bible.org.